we asked ourselves a very simple question, which is, what if we would be in 1955? Think about the tariff levels that the world had in 1955, for instance. What would have been the impact of this shock in a less integrated world? Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifanter. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. I wanted to know what a trade economist had to say about the economic consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I contacted Alessandro Sforza. Alessandro is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Bologna in Italy. He received his PhD from the London School of Economics and is affiliated at the IFO Institute. In his research, he is interested in international trade and organizational economics. And I wanted to ask him whether globalization helped or hurt us in the current pandemic. Hi, Alessandro. Hi, Clem. Thank you for being here today. It's a pleasure. Thanks. So I wanted to talk about your work that is going to be looking at the economic impact of COVID-19 in the context of globalization. So the global pandemic that we're experiencing right now seems to be amplifying and reinforcing a debate on the collective benefits of globalization. So you know that there's an old question around the fact that uh, the global system of trades uh, tend to create winners and losers both between countries and also within countries. What do you think are the specificities of the current situation and of the COVID-19 economic shock that are important to study in the context of globalization? Well, that's a very important question. And the reason is that this is a very new and different shock from any other shock that we've experienced in the past. Uh, compared to any other uh, shock that we've seen in the past, this is a global shock. So um, the word global is the key part of this shock. It affects all the countries at the same time with different magnitudes. So the shock is going to be different across countries, but everybody is affected at the same time. So in the context of a global economy, in the context of uh, these global players in the world, we have to take into account that this is a very new shock to study. Um, think about different shocks that we experienced in the past, like the financial crisis. It was an event that was starting in one country and then it diffused to other countries. Or think about uh, natural disasters. Those are events that start in one, countries, in one country and then through the linkages of trade, they might diffuse to other countries. While this shock, this COVID-19 pandemics, it's uh, different in its essence. It is... Um, a global shock in its nature, and that's why it is extremely interesting to study this, this new shock. And so in your work with Marina Steininger, you explore what is the role of globalization in mitigating or magnifying the impact, the economic impact of COVID-19. And to do that, you guys work on an economic model. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time to talk about why is it useful to think about these questions within a theoretical economic model. The reason why we need this tool is because we are, at the moment, during the time of the pandemics. So imagine if you want to run a lab experiment, you want to test something very simple, the effect of a medicine 
on a specific disease. Then you can do something very simple. You can run an experiment in which you treat some patients and you don't treat some other patient. And then you compare the outcomes of these people before and after the treatment. Well, now we are during the time of the pandemics, so we cannot observe already the ex-post outcomes of what's going to be the, the outcome of this COVID-19 shock in the, in the economies. So we need to use a more sophisticated toolkit, uh, let's say a mathematical toolkit that allows us to um, somehow uh, look into the future to see what's going to happen to the economies, assuming that they're going to be affected by this shock in a certain way. So we need to develop a more sophisticated uh, toolkit that will allow us to study the effect of these pandemics on the economies around the world. Can you tell us what are the key in ingredients of this model? What are the, the important parameters that we should account for? So the, 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 the key ingredients of the model are, let's say, two. First of all, we use a model in which countries and sector are interconnected through trade linkages. So a good that is produced in a specific country is going to be produced using intermediaries from other countries. Okay? So, and this is a key element if one person wants to study the effect of a trade or a global pandemic shock, right? We want to capture this interconnectedness of countries across the globe. And the second element, which we believe it's, it's very important, is that each sector can source intermediaries from other sectors. So suppose you produce a final good, uh, let's say a shoe, you're going to need intermediate inputs from other sectors. You're going to need the leather from the textile sectors or the, the metal from another, from the manufacturing sector. So these two elements, these uh, two uh, networking elements uh, allow us to study the role of a shock that starts in one country or that starts in different countries and we, we can show how it diffuses in the economy across sectors and across countries. So interrelated sectors matter and also I guess the geographic distribution of, of these sectors and of these shocks. Can you tell us a bit more about that? That's another important element, right? Because um, a lot of models might simplify the economy and assume that the production is uniformly distributed across the countries, right? So let's say that a simple model would think that uh, all the production of manufacturing is equally distributed across the region in a country. What we do in our framework is also to capture this geographical uh, heterogeneity of the production within a country. So if one country is more hit by the shock, by this global pandemic, in a specific region, and in that region uh, the production of a specific good is more localized, we are going to capture this uh, geographic distribution of the sector across the region, and on top of that we're going to capture how this shock, which is local in one sector, in one region, is going to diffuse across the, the other region through these linkages, through the sectoral linkages, through trade linkages, through these intermediate inputs linkages. And this is what we have seen in the region of Wuhan, for instance, right? Exactly. So uh, the, the example of China is a, is a key example, right? So, of course, uh, COVID had uh, spread in China across all regions, but the core region which we observed the explosion of COVID was the region of Wuhan. Now, 
we need to take into account the sectoral distribution of production in China together with the geographic distribution of production in China. Wuhan is specialized in production of two or three uh, manufacturing goods. They produce optical lenses, they produce some textiles. Of course, if we wouldn't have this interconnectedness of sectors and uh, intermediate inputs, we wouldn't capture the importance of the shock in other regions. Why? A shock in Wuhan, in our framework, is going to diffuse through the entire China across these linkages, as well as to other countries across these linkages, because some of these goods are going to be produced for the exporting markets. So we capture both these elements. And so starting from your framework, we know that it's crucial if you want to come up with appropriate political response to address the current situation, to have uh, an estimation of the magnitude of the economic shock experienced by these different countries. What do you find when you put your model to the data and what are the main results of your calibration exercise, typically on which countries are the most affected, economically speaking? The main results come from a calibration and then from an exercise that in economics we call counterfactual scenarios. So we calibrate our model to a lot of data and we look at what happens to the real income of these countries that we have in our framework. So how much does the welfare drops in each of these countries? Again, bear in mind that in our framework we have uh, a lot of geographical elements. We capture the regional distribution of the shock, the regional distribution of the economic activity, and so on. So the results are going to be way more heterogeneous than in a model in which you don't have this element. The key results are that the countries in the eastern part of Europe, as well as the country of the Mediterranean part of Europe, are very much affected by this shock. While some other countries, like for instance China, or the Netherlands, or even Germany, have, are less affected. Now, we're talking about numbers that range between 18% drop in GDP in real income to 3.6% drop in real income. The lowest is Sweden. Why? Well, because Sweden didn't implement any lockdown. So, in a way, the shock, it's only uh, captured partially. It's just captured in terms of the, these linkages. There is no reduction in the production at home because people could go to work. While for some other countries, like for example, Slovenia or um, some other, like Poland, we see drops of real income that range around 18%. Why? Well, because those countries are extremely open to trade. They rely a lot on their partners. So their production is both uh, extremely uh, centered toward exporting, but they also need intermediate inputs from abroad to produce their final goods. So the more the countries seem to be open, the more they experience a higher shock that is due to these uh, pandemics. La minute technique. So you, you talked about the specificity of your theoretical framework, which is the idea of integrating different sectors and geographical variation within a standard uh, trade model, what we call the Ricardian model. In this podcast, we ask researchers to take one minute to try to explain one technical aspect of their research. I wanted to ask you if you could tell us about the basic intuitions behind the Ricardian model of trade and why it is useful in your particular context. 
So the recounting model of trade is, is one of these uh, very simple toolkit that uh, trade economists uh, kind of learn and love. Why is it uh, a nice toolkit? Well, because it's based on a very simple intuition, which is the idea of comparative advantages, right? So what is a comparative advantage? The comparative advantage is when somebody is relatively more productive in producing a specific good. Why is that important? Well, imagine the simple case or the very standard example of France and Portugal. Uh, suppose that France decides to produce both cheese and uh, sweet wine. And suppose that Portugal decides to produce, again, cheese and sweet wine. They can trade each other those two goods, but at some point they will realize that if one of these countries is relatively more productive in making one of those two goods, it would be beneficial for both of them to specialize their production in the goods in which they have a relative comparative advantage and then trade that good to have the other good. In the textbook example of the Ricardian trade model, it will end up that Portugal will produce Porto wine, so sweet wine, and France will produce cheese, and everybody would be better off by trading the cheese for the Porto wine across the two countries. So in a way, this is a, is a, is a simple model that explains the welfare gains from trading, okay? We take this very simple model and we let's say, expand in many dimensions. We have more countries, we have more sectors, more than the two sectors of cheese and wine. We have regional variation in the location of producing these, these goods, and we have interconnectedness, again, in the sectors of production and in the inputs that are used from one sector to another to produce the final good. Okay, so cheese is gonna be using inputs from other sectors, the machinery is, is going to come from the manufacturing sector or, I don't know, the, the water pumps are going to come from the, from the sector of the water pumps and so on. Uh, and, so, and the same is going to be true for, for, the, producing, for the producers of, of wine in Portugal. So they're going to use intermediate inputs from other sectors to produce the final good. And so what is great once you have elaborated this theoretical framework and you close your model is that then you can bring it to the data and applying the model to the large number of data sets that you collect together. You said that you have about, I think, 50 sectors and 44, maybe more countries now. And what you can do is you can test what happens when I change a particular policy. When I modify a particular variable in my model, what happens in terms of economic outcome? And one important policy that you test is what will happen for the economic impact of COVID-19 in a less integrated world. So in a world where a lot of the production will be brought back home and countries would not be trading with each other as much. And you disentangled two different effects of the economic impact of COVID-19. Can you walk us through these different effects related to globalization? Sure. So the beauty of these kind of toolkits of this model, it's exactly what you, you were mentioning, that you can ask yourself hypothetical questions, right? So you can ask yourself, what would happen if the world would be as if in 1965? What happens in this context with this shock if we would bring back the world to 1965, where countries were less integrated, that trade costs were higher to ship one good from the US to China, the cost of shipping that good 
would be higher. There were less trade agreements. So it was way more complicated to rely on, on your trade partners. You would produce a little bit more at home because trade was way more costly. So we do two different exercises. Uh, the first one is to try to understand how much these global linkages account for the total welfare drop that we observed due to COVID. And the second exercise, as you mentioned, is to look at a world that is as if 1965, let's say, with higher trade barriers. So first of all, the decomposition. Let's say we try to decompose the total welfare drop in two main elements. A direct effect, which is basically the production effect, the production drops due to the shutdown at home. So uh, during the COVID, a lot of countries had to implement the lockdown, so people could not go to work um, unless their work was, as we say today, teleworkable, so they could do smart working, they could work from home. But a lot of these kind of jobs were not possibly uh, teleworkable, and so people could not go to produce their goods. And so this is what we call the production effect, the direct effect that is due to the lockdown. And then there is another component that we call the indirect effect that comes from these trade linkages. When your trade partner is more affected by the shock, you're going to have more trouble to, to, to get your intermediate input. So your production at home, even if you would be able to produce the final good, you're going to miss some intermediate because your trade partner is, is going to send you less. Okay, so this is kind of the first exercise, and we see that the global value chains, this global part of our model, accounts for a good 30% of the total shock that we observe. So it's a big, important part. Then we say, okay, but would it be better if we didn't have this globalized world? And we look at this exercise in which we bring back the world to 1965, let's say. And what we observe is that, first, each country would be worse off, by far. Why? Well, because bringing the countries back to 1965 would gigantically decrease their real income, their welfare. Everybody would, would be worse off. We observe drop in welfare that are higher than 30 percentage points. So, it's gigantic reduction in, in the real income for these countries. Is it true that the impact of COVID-19 would be systematically smaller in a world in which everybody would bring production back home? Well, it is true, but the difference is extremely marginal. So bringing production back home would push down the level of real uh, wealth or welfare or real income for each country, and the gain from the drop in the shock would be extremely marginal. So the world would be much worse. What is fascinating to see when you do this exercise of looking at the impact in a world where countries are less integrated or when different sectors play out uh, in the economy that would affect your calculation of welfare, we're kind of curious also to uh, what would happen between, for instance, skill groups in like a country within a given country. I'm asking you about the next step of your research to better understand the economic impact of COVID-19 in a globalized world where we also introduce heterogeneities in terms of skill groups 
within a given country. So that's that's extremely fascinating um, to understand somehow the distribution of the gains and the losses across skill groups of this specific shop. Unfortunately, within this specific model, with this toolkit that we have used for this uh, paper, we cannot say much. It would go beyond the scope of the model. However, I'm currently working on a modified version or a new version of this model, which would bring some other elements, for instance, skills, uh, skill groups, and also migration. That would be the ideal framework to study and to try to understand this question. Why? Well, because if you have a model in which you have trade, you allow people to migrate across countries and you have skill groups, you can really study what is the effect of such a shock across skills. You can say something about inequality, you can say something about inequality across skill groups, within a sector and across sector. And that is extremely important for policymakers to understand what are the dynamics of a shock like COVID across skill groups and across sectors and regions in each country. This is kind of the next step of this uh, agenda. We hope we are going to be able to say something about this in the near future. We need more data. We need a little bit more to, to, to say something about this. And before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you if you had a particular recommendation for our listeners of a book, a reference or a movie that influenced the way you thought about economics. I love to read uh, history books. I'm currently reading a very interesting book, uh, which I would recommend to everybody. It's called The History of a Coin Through the Roman Empire. In Italian, it's L'Impero Romano. So the author of the book is Alberto Angela. It's an Italian author, um, but the book is translated in English and in many other languages. Why is that interesting? Well, because the Roman Empire was the first experiment of, of a European Union. It was the, the time in which they constructed the roads to connect countries across Europe. They had one single coin across all the countries, and they were kind of integrated in many ways that we are still not now. So it's very fascinating to see how they managed to integrate countries and culture that are so different and they were even more different back in the days and to create something that was lasting for very long. I think it's a very nice read for people that want to understand what are the origins somehow of the European Union and how do we think about trade. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time and for all these elements. Thanks so much, it was a pleasure. This was Inequality Talks a podcast recorded by Clémentine Vanefanter in Toronto. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.